This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters at Patreon.com and by N Plus One Magazine, which features some of the most urgent and exciting political writing, essays, fiction, and cultural criticism on the left today. At NPlusOneMag.com, they've been publishing a ton of clarifying writing about the pandemic that might be of interest to Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Kareem Saryamid's report from a New York emergency room, which Naomi Klein recently called an extraordinary piece on the healthcare crisis underlying this crisis. Saryamid, an ER doctor and organizer with Put People First PA, chronicles a dangerous lack of personal protective equipment and discusses the efforts among workers to fight for safer conditions for themselves and their patients. It's a powerful call for solidarity between healthcare workers and the larger working class. Saryamid writes, quote, Gliding past people's individual needs and their desperation is the mandate of a profit-driven health system. The direness of this situation will bring patients and health workers together almost by default, but the other thing that can unite working-class people is clarity about our shared conditions. This month, Dig listeners can take 25% off a year subscription to N Plus One in print. Go to N Plus One Mag slash The Dig to subscribe and enter The Dig at checkout. You will get three issues delivered in the mail, plus full access to the magazine's online archives and free entry to readings and events whenever those start to happen again, all for less than $3 a month. That's N-P-L-U-S-O-N-E-M-A-G dot com slash the dig. Enter the dig one word at checkout. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Today, I'm interviewing my Jacobin colleagues, Megan Day and Micah Utrecht, to assess the Bernie campaign and ponder where we might go from here. I want to make one thing clear before we get started. We should no doubt assess why we didn't win, but we should not let that overshadow the more important question of how Bernie got so close to winning. We have come to take it as almost normal that radical social democratic demands are at the center of public debate. But until very recently, that was extremely abnormal because socialist, let alone social democratic ideas, were extraordinarily marginal. If we don't recognize how remarkable it is that a self-proclaimed Democratic Socialist almost won the Democratic Party nomination and then the presidency, that he overwhelmingly won young voters and won in California and Nevada thanks to militant working class Latinos. If we don't recognize how remarkable that is, then we will miss the most crucial lessons for future fights and campaigns heading down the road. We are doing better and more effective work than ever. and. We've never pulled off something like what we just did. We are not yet effective or powerful enough, of course, obviously. But it would be an enormous error, lacking 
all historical perspective to decide that because our movement didn't go from zero to the presidency in four years, that our approach and strategy must then be entirely discarded. Some of the people pushing the black pill are simply sad that we lost. And I totally get that. I'm sad too. But others are people who have always been hostile to electoral politics, but have zero in the way of an alternative strategy of how we get from neoliberal dystopia to communist revolution. And those people, I would suggest you take their arguments with a grain of salt. Anyhow, as you may know, I and many other Bernie volunteer leaders have been pushing Bernie to maintain the campaign infrastructure that we all built together and to retool it for the coming social movement fights. There are signs that that is now happening, though it's not at all clear yet to what end. One thing that I've heard loud and clear from Bernie volunteers is that they need to be assured that their donations and volunteer work will not go to the Biden campaign or to the DNC. Those demands are entirely fair and correct, and the campaign needs to clarify what we will be doing moving forward. People can debate whether or not you should vote for Joe Biden, etc., and I'm sure we will discuss that in future podcast episodes. But whatever you think about that debate, it isn't pertinent at all to this issue because if Bernie volunteers are asked as part of this successor organization to donate and volunteer for Joe Biden, then many, many, many of them simply will not. That is just a fact, whatever you think about it. And whatever new organization is emerging from the Bernie 2020 campaign as a result will go to waste. Also, I wanted to let you know what we're up to in Rhode Island to give you a sense of what you can do wherever you live. On Saturday, we reconvened much of our state's volunteer campaign leadership, and the campaign operation here in Rhode Island was almost exclusively volunteer-led the whole time, and we had about 18 people, I think, in a Zoom meeting. Everyone at the meeting, it was incredibly refreshing. We had people from DSA and Sunrise and all sorts of people who had been volunteer leaders in the campaign. Everyone was on the same page about keeping our network together to form a new organization. Over the past few months of the campaign here in Rhode Island, we developed a list with contact information for hundreds of volunteers, people who came to our rallies, took a bus with us to Canvas in New Hampshire, phone banked, knocked on doors in Massachusetts, serious volunteers who dedicated time to the campaign. We started calling that list on Monday night, and we are getting an amazing response from our volunteers. People are very much down to keep fighting. We're still figuring out what we're going to do, but we're looking closely at two models from Pennsylvania of powerful local groups that came out of Bernie 2016 and Trump's election. That moment, Reclaim Philadelphia and also Lancaster stands up. And I'll be keeping you in the loop in terms of what we're doing so that you can maybe learn from it and take inspiration from our model. But I wanted to urge you right now to not let your local volunteer campaign networks go to waste. Remobilize them now. People really want to take action. These are some of the best volunteer phone calls I've ever had in my life. Okay, before we get rolling in just a minute, this podcast is only possible because listeners, people just like you listening right now, support us at patreon.com slash the dig. Not only do your contributions keep the show up and running, 
they also allow us to do a lot of cool new things, like two cool new things we're doing now. One thing being listener-hosted Dig Book Clubs, and the other thing being a limited-run series on the politics of COVID-19. It'll be more of like a narrative series like This American Life or 99% Invisible, but more communist. Either of which, by the way, you can learn more about at thedigradio.com. That's thedigradio.com. Back to my request for your support. If you do have a stable source of income right now and you can afford to support us, please take a moment to do so now. Plus, we have a left-wing book or books to send you in the mail if you contribute at least $10 a month. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the dig. Thank you very much. And here is Megan Day and Micah Utrecht, the co-authors of Bigger Than Bernie, How We Go from the Sanders Campaign to Democratic Socialism from Verso. Megan is a staff writer at Jacobin. Micah is managing editor of Jacobin, host of Jacobin radio podcast, The Vast Majority, and author of Strike for America, Chicago Teachers Against Austerity. Micah Utrecht and Megan Day, welcome to The Dig. Thanks for having us. Hello, thanks for having us. We should start maybe by just saying that it's okay to be heartbroken and okay to to grieve, but we should also remember, and this is extremely cliche, but the left does love the phrase, don't mourn organized for a reason. So to start things off on a bright note, what's the right way to approach what really feels like a catastrophic loss without slipping into nihilism? Yeah, I mean, this is the most important question of the moment. I mean, there is a sense that I have gotten from some on the left in the days and weeks since Bernie's campaign was suspended that in order to be truly intellectually serious and truly honest about Bernie's suspension of his campaign, that it means that we have to like that there must only be weeping and gnashing of teeth, right? Like the, the only uh, true response that is truly looking at the situation squarely in the face is to say that everything, you know, we, we lost, it was a disaster. We're screwed for uh, years and decades to come. Um, and I want to be honest about what those failures were. And we can talk about what those failures were. If we're not honest about them, then we're doomed to obviously repeat the same mistakes as we have made in the past. Um, but I, also do not think either on a strategic level or on just a just purely honest intellectual level that that we are in this awful worst case universe like emerging from bernie's two campaigns the left is stronger than it has ever been uh, in any of our lifetimes in at least half a century if not longer we have more opportunities to uh, sees within American politics, there's more political space that has opened up for the left in American politics than we have seen in our lifetimes. Uh, we have, besides just Bernie's campaign, we have other victories, whether electoral or at the 
social movement level that we can point to that have happened over the course of his two campaigns uh, that point to those new opportunities that we have. So there are a whole slew of things that we can point to that sh- show that the we, we have like a new opportunities going forward that we actually have a, a, a rough roadmap of, of how we can um, move forward from here. And I don't think I, I truly like in my bones do not think that this situation with uh, the end of Bernie's campaign should mean that people should uh, sink into nihilism. I think that uh, for some people, that's like an easier place to go. And, and you know, I, I again, I want to have a full conversation about what we've what we've lost and, and what we've gained. But uh, I think that there's a lot more. I mean, if you look at where the left was even just five years ago, and people who have been on the left for a long time know this, the situation was so dire, even just five years ago, the left played essentially no role in American political life. And now we have an opportunity to play an enormous role in, in American political life. So I think that we should be keeping that forma- foremost in our mind, even as we're doing the mourning that is necessary uh, for the end of the Bernie campaign right now, we should keep in our mind that those opportunities for the left uh, in the years and decades to come are very much there. And we should not let our mourning uh, turn into nihilism that will then mean that we can't seize those opportunities. I could not agree more. Megan? Yeah, I feel similar to Micah. Um, There is a strong tendency on the left right now. I'm not going to say it's the dominant tendency, but it's certainly prominent to respond to people like Micah and I who are saying like, you should maybe you should not feel so bad. There are actually some, you know, major victories that were won over the course of the last half decade for the left. Uh, At least at least we have the raw material to do something with that. Um, There is a tendency to respond and say, like, no, all hope is lost. And just face it, like face 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 the music. This was an enormous failure. Um, Sometimes that's coming from people who have been skeptical of electoral politics for a long time and are sort of seizing the opportunity to demonstrate uh, to everybody that it was actually a fool's errand. Uh, Sometimes it's coming from people who, if I can be frank, I think that there's a kind of confusion of aggressive cynicism with pragmatism sometimes on the left. The idea that like, if you are an intellectually serious person, as Micah mentioned, then your reaction to the current situation will be necessarily extremely gloomy because we did just lose. But I don't, I don't think that that's accurate. I mean, I've been spending the last week and a half thinking really hard about what we've gained and what we've lost and trying to give an honest accounting and uh, come up with an honest balance sheet. And I don't, I agree with Micah that I don't think that we are worse off than we were five years ago, for example. So I actually think that this is an important point. If you're comparing our present situation to the scenario in which Bernie Sanders wins the primary and then wins the general and becomes the president of the United States, we are significantly worse off than that scenario. But we're, we're, significant, we're significantly better off than this scenario where Bernie Sanders didn't run at all. We've won some major, major victories. Uh, a few of them that come to mind are that, personally, I think that we have, it's possible that we just blocked an even scarier 
right-wing rise than the one that we saw, because of course there was a lot of populist energy coming out of the Great Recession. It manifested first in the Tea Party and then in uh, Occupy Wall Street, and it was clearly going to find some kind of electoral expression at some point. And obviously it found electoral expression on the right wing in the form of Donald Trump. Can you imagine a scenario where it didn't actually find electoral expression on the left? I think that would have been a very dangerous situation. So I want to at least encourage people to like- And all of that energy had gone to the right with no counterbalance. Right. I want to encourage people to actually entertain a counterfactual for a minute and maybe just breathe a sigh of relief. It's possible that we actually, by building a viable and credible left electoral expression for that naturally occurring populist energy, it is possible that we are much better off than we would have been if that hadn't happened. And I also think that, you know, it's it's not um, it's not a stretch to say that Americans expectations for what they might reasonably deserve from a functioning society have been significantly raised by you could call it the Bernie Sanders campaign, this five-year campaign. You know, we can see that in the popularity of the platform that Bernie Sanders put forward. I've, I've seen a couple of people saying, oh, these things were actually popular before him. I don't... I don't I don't believe that for a minute. I mean, I was around, right? People would say things like we want universal health care, but Medicare for all or single payer health care was not extremely popular. And it, it is, was utterly it is. marginal. It was utterly marginal. And I believe, as Hillary Clinton put it it, it, it would never, ever come to pass. And you could sort of get away with with saying things like that. And it was not it wouldn't raise that many eyebrows because it wasn't a popular demand. Yes, the idea of universal health care, this vague concept that like people shouldn't be uninsured was popular. But that obviously translated into Obamacare very easily. Right. This was the idea was that they were going to eliminate uninsurance by opening up the marketplace to people and facilitating you know, points of contact to like purchase and insurance through the exchanges. So, um, yeah, the pop- popularity of Medicare for all, the popularity of tuition free college, which when I was canvassing for Bernie, I discovered is just an enormously popular demand in working class immigrant communities because a lot of people are immigrating to this country and working extremely hard in the hopes that they can provide their children with opportunities for advancement that they themselves are never going to actually personally experience. And they're finding as their kids turn into teenagers that they the money that they've been able to save on their meager wages is not actually enough to cover college education for their kids. And it really is like a very heavily symbolic and also extremely material problem for people. So tuition-free college has a much wider reach than I think some people on the left actually give it credit for. And now it is totally thinkable. It's like, it's not, it's not inevitable, but it's thinkable. And it's, it's now a core plank of our platform, our platform, the left in general. The same is true for uh, medical debt cancellation, student debt cancellation. And of course, a Green New Deal, which again is also becoming thinkable in a way that it wasn't before. I mean, it literally just was a, not a concept that was even on anyone's minds prior to Bernie Sanders' And, and now you saw those chants break out at so many rallies because those three words are now the three words that so many young people use to articulate the very idea of having a future. Yeah. And I think this is so critical because also the environmental movement has been unfortunately too divorced from a movement for economic rights. And it, there, therefore, it has had a lot of difficulty rooting itself in the working class and accessing the, therefore, the uh, mass power and developing the mass character that it needs to actually implement the change that it is 
it's, pr it's proposing. So this is an enormous shift. Um, of course, it's our responsibility to then take advantage of the opportunities that are available to us. And again, that's not an inevitability, but certainly we have, like I said, raw materials that we didn't have before. And then finally, the, in terms of raised expectations, I think there's also a sense in which Bernie Sanders is campaign has helped kind of break the spell of capitalist realism. That's a term that the theorist Mark Fisher uses to describe just the pervasive sense of demoralization and the sense that an alternative literally is not possible, an alternative to capitalism. Mark Fisher sort of references that Margaret Thatcher quote from the early 80s when there are, you know, mass protests uh, and strikes against her agenda of austerity and privatization and the press asks her to respond to people you know what, what do you what do you what do you have to say to these very unhappy people and she just deadpan responds there is no alternative like I don't have to argue for why my way is better we have the power this is you should just simply accept it and your responsibility as an individual is to like locate your place in this vast system that is, is not going to change and I think that Bernie Sanders's campaigns have actually throttled that a little bit like I think that you know to the to the extent that there's like been a deep demoralization in the American populace, even as people are extremely dissatisfied with, you know, stagnant wages and rising living costs, uh, that they just don't feel that there's anything that can be done about it. I think that that we've rounded a corner there. And that gives us on the left opportunities that simply didn't exist before and for which I think we should be genuinely grateful because if we're not, then we're going to squander the opportunity to take advantage of them. Yeah, Thatcher's statement was a reflection of what was becoming what Gramsci called hegemonic. And now that those old certainties are becoming extremely uncertain, which is not as good as winning things right away. But it's a prerequisite to winning those things. Right. One thing that's changed for me since 2016 is that four years later, I no longer self-ID as young and I, at the ripe old age of 37, I was still holding on to it at like 33. And I think some old millennial, you know, like millennial on the cusp of Gen X, Xennial perspective is helpful here. And so my perspective is to piggyback on what you both have been saying. I've been involved in the radical left since the late 90s. And the left has never been this powerful, like not even close in that whole period and before that period. And I don't say this to warn anyone away from radicalism, but rather to warn them away from pessimism, because pessimism, it doesn't lead to more radical politics. It leads to becoming a boomer like Todd Gitlin lecturing everyone to support <laughs> Joe Biden in the nation. So that's we, we you don't want to become that person. Right. And, you know, uh, Dan, I know you've had similar experiences to me. You're a few years older than me, but I've been on the radical left for a while and I've told the story before, but one of the last mass rallies that Bernie did was in Grand Rapids, Michigan, where I went to school for two years. And uh, it was done in a, it was held in a, uh, a plaza where we used to do like food, not bombs and anti-Iraq war protests uh, in the mid two thousands when I was starting college. And, we would do these protests. I remember one time we did a, a protest when Bush came to Grand Rapids and we had a noise block against Bush. And it was like eight of us just like 
wantonly banging on instruments, not playing any music, just like being like, we're going to create a cacophony against Bush. And it was like eight of us. <laughs> and it, it was just moronic in, in hindsight. It's like embarrassing. I hope there's not a video of it out there anywhere. Uh, and in that exact same place where we had held that protest, where I, you know, blew on a trombone, like unlistenable noises for however many hours. Uh, there were eight or 9,000 people out for Bernie Sanders, you know, hearing some pretty radical demands could uh, be coming from a, a politician on the national stage. Uh, eight or 9,000 people in that exact same place where years earlier I had been doing this like marginal subcultural thing with my friends. And I don't want to go back to that. And there's no need to go back to that. I mean, we've had a huge setback here, uh, but we've given been given a taste of what it can be like to actually engage in mass politics. And that's just so it's just light years away from what those of us on the radical left were doing, uh, you know, 15 years ago, even like five years ago. Yeah. And un unlike Mike, I was not I was not really on the left, I was like around the left, but I wasn't really on the left prior to Bernie Sanders' 2016 campaign. So I don't have any memories of this, but I also understand sort of intuitively the incredible power of Bernie's campaign for setting people into motion. And I think this is really important when we're talking about people are, are I think, uh, incorrectly juxtaposing material victories to ideological ones. I've noticed that this is a tendency that people have who are like perhaps recent converts to Marxism and they've just suddenly come to understand something that is extremely true, which is that when liberals talk about hearts and minds, they're being foolish because the world doesn't change because hearts and minds change. You have to have materials, material conditions need to be massaged and they need to, and people need to make in, material interventions and, and then our social systems will flow from there and changes will flow from there. Okay, that's true. And once you realize that, I understand that you can then develop a sort of cynicism about ideological victories where you sort of roll your eyes and you say, well, that doesn't matter whatsoever because, you know, that's just hearts and minds stuff. And that sounds very liberal to me. I think that that's not, you haven't taken the, the next leap, if that's where your thinking is at, which is under what circumstances would a person be compelled to actually intervene such that they could produce new material, uh, Set, set new material processes in motion. People have to have confidence that they, when they act, they're taking on risks that might be worth the rewards. And I think that that's something that Bernie Sanders has actually been able to affect. He's made a lot of people feel like, they're, like their struggles are not actually their fault. This has actually been a refrain of his campaign. It's very uh, uh, reminiscent of good, that scene in Goodwill Hunting. And, you know, the idea that if you're drowning in medical debt, it's not your fault. It's not because you made poor financial decisions or because you should have gotten a better education or because if you couldn't afford a better education, you simply should have been uh, born to wealthier parents, right? He has actually given people a sense that they belong to a society and that in fact, the obstacles that are placed in their path are placed there for a reason for somebody else's benefit and that that is not an inevitable state of affairs and it can change. We have a lot of examples of people who have become newly empowered and radicalized by the ideas that they've encountered in the Bernie Sanders campaign, then going forward and arranging themselves into new formations and other people into new formations in a way that actually intervenes materially in the world. So like a 
An example of this is the uh, Bernie Sanders volunteers in West Virginia, who then, once Bernie Sanders' campaign was over in 2016, um, decided that they couldn't, you know, get enough. And so they joined DSA and in a DSA group focused on education, they, they're both teachers, they decided to organize a Facebook group for teachers in West Virginia to channel some of the, the rage that teachers had, you know, you know, the whole story, I hope that I hope that your listeners know the story, this eventually helped kick off a series of strikes, that was the biggest strike wave that this country has seen in decades. So that's extremely thrilling and it's extremely material. And then another example, I mean, just from literally right now, and there are many in between, but something that's occurring at this moment is that students for Bernie chapters, these are college students who volunteered for Bernie, they're, they're insatiable. They're not ready to, to hang up their hats, right? So they are actually mounting pressure campaigns against their austerity-minded administrations to force them to provide hazard pay or paid sick leave or PPE to uh, campus workers. And they're keeping their infrastructure alive and keeping that sort of they're keeping the relationships tight and they're moving forward and actually pushing the project forward beyond Bernie Sanders and his campaign itself. And so I think that, yeah, when people's minds are changed about things, when they actually develop a sense of confidence and when they develop relationships and skills in the course of working on a campaign like the Bernie Sanders campaign, that actually sets new material processes into motion. So those two things can't be easily separated from one another. And in, in terms of some very concrete debates that are happening right now for people who are saying that this is what you get for running a candidate in the Democratic primary, I just really want to emphasize that our enemies are far more afraid of the left now than they were when we were running Ralph Nader as a Green Party candidate in 2000. And I will never apologize for supporting Nader in 2000, never. But <laughs> but it's still beyond clear to me that this strategy is better. It would have been just there is there is no argument to the contrary here that that Bernie would have been more impactful had he launched a third party candidacy. That's just ludicrous. Yeah. And the reason that those people are able to lecture the rest of the left about how the uh, electoral strategy that Bernie took was a failure is because Bernie undertook that electoral strategy. Like the reason that we have the reborn left in this country uh, in a way that never came out of a Green Party run or uh, of any kind of third party run is because Bernie uh, ran the way that he did. And I, I I find it hard to believe that anybody who's being uh, honest with themselves uh, about the situation that we are now in uh, can chalk up the Bernie campaign, uh, can, can say that the Bernie campaign was was a failure. It clearly uh, it did not win, uh, but it produced this totally tra uh, transformed political landscape that we're now operating under. It includes things like what Megan was just talking about, like the all kinds of new social movement activity. Um, and so, you know, running uh, as a as a Democrat, as he did, sort with this sort of independence and hostility towards the Democratic Party establishment, running on the Democratic, uh, you know, vying for the Democratic Party ballot line for the presidential candidate, that produced this this scenario in which we have a new newly reborn left and and new social movement energies and it gives lie to the argument that you have to choose you know is it going are we going to work on social movement work you know grassroots organizing labor movement or whatever or are we going to do elections i mean bernie's campaign shows that uh the electoral uh, organizing can also uh create new energies at the social movement level 
I, I also, I want to caution us against, and I don't think Micah's doing this, but I think it's worth, and nor do I hope I am also not doing this. And I worth, I think it's worth just acknowledging that like there is a kind of like saccharine boosterism that we want to avoid. I think that we should be honest about the fact that we lost it once in a generation or once in a multiple generation opportunity to actually have someone like Bernie Sanders holding the highest office, not just in the country, but frankly, in, in the world, like it, it, it yeah, to sort of like that, leapfrog well ahead of our institutional capacity. There yeah. was this moment to do that. There was this moment to do that and to use that opportunity to reverse engineer the kind of movement that we would have hoped had already existed by the time we got to the point that we were running somebody for president. Um, and 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 also just like there are some real material there are some real material problems with the fact that Bernie lost. So, for example, we don't have that long to make uh, real interventions on climate. And the fact that we're not going to have somebody in the White House, we're not going to have meaningful climate action emanating from the White House is a major loss that we should just be honest about. And the same is true for the fact that we're now, we have now uh, been plunged into a massive economic crisis. And neither Donald Trump nor Joe Biden, though they are different from each other in key respects, neither of them has the toolkit to be able to pull us out of this crisis in a way that actually avoids avoidable mass suffering on the part of working class people, because that would involve things like uh, redistribution, expropriation, nationalization, universal social programs, direct provision of aid with no strings attached. And obviously, you know, even if Joe Biden were to win, he would not be able to marshal the uh, ability to do anything like that. It's not it's not in his political imagination or vocabulary, which means that we're in for uh, some major we're in for some major hurt in this country for presumably a very long time to come. And not having Bernie win is, is a big problem for that reason. But the point that I, Mike and I are making is not like, hey, you know, guys, like we, we won a lot. And so we should feel good about it instead of feeling bad about the fact that we we lost. I think that what Mike and I are saying is that we should make an have an honest accounting. And if you are being honest, you have to acknowledge the fact that the left is in a much better position than it was five years ago. And of course, uh, there are no no permanent victories and no permanent defeats anyway. It's all just kind of one one long struggle. And I think that we've made some serious advances over the last half decade. Optimism of the will does does matter even as we engage in pessimism of the intellect because affect and mood matters, which doesn't mean deluding ourselves that nothing horrible just happened. But people, especially those with platforms, should really be careful about about circulating a mood that is going to demobilize people at the time when we need to be more mobilized than ever before. Yeah, that's exactly right. I, I don't even think... Full pessimism of the intellect is uh, even warranted, but uh, right. to the extent that it is warranted, <laughs> what what is the what is the upshot of going around doing that self-flagellation over and over? What is the political upshot? Like, it's not going to help us uh, seize the opportunities that we have uh, created. In fact, it's just going to it, near near Tandon uh, smiles when when leftists are uh, dejected after the <laughs> Bernie Sanders campaign. I mean, you don't want to make hey, come on. Tandon you don't smile. want that. You do not. You don't exactly. like to see it. <laughs> You do not like to see it. Exactly. <laughs> well, I, so so th in terms of how we approach these debates over what's called electoralism, which is a term I, I hate because it misleadingly suggests that there's this one for one trade off between movement politics and electoral politics when when in fact there is there is an issue to to 
to address, but it's the issue is a complex tension that's at play and that can certainly play out negatively for movement yeah, of politics. How, how do you see that tension and how, why, how might we ensure right now in this moment, ensure that it plays out as productively as possible for left politics? Well, the reason that people are so down, uh, some people on the left are so down on uh, electoral politics uh, is precisely because there are many pitfalls to engaging in electoral politics and there are uh, ways in engaging it that demobilize social movements, that sap the energy of social movements. And we are obviously people who want to avoid those pitfalls. Uh, we have a whole chapter in the book about sort of uh, what good left electoral strategy should look like. And it's a strategy that should be very cognizant of the fact that playing this game is a, is a dangerous one. It's, uh, you know, there's a long history of people in the United States who are good leftists or progressives and uh, maybe aren't super hype on the Democratic Party, for example, but they realize <laughs> that it is basically the only game in town in most places for people who have any kind of left electoral politics. And so they go into the party and the party success fully you know zaps all of their progressive energy and pulls them rightward and successfully diffuses the roiling uh left and political energies that were out there that that went into the campaign it went into running for elected office and so we should we should be very sober about that we should make sure that we run electoral campaigns that don't do that and it seems clear to me that bernie's campaign was a, a campaign that, that did not do that it's a campaign i mean e even in ways that i don't think any of us would have thought possible beforehand like the the campaign used its infrastructure to turn people out to support picket lines uh you know it it sent if, if workers are on strike in chicago multiple times the bernie campaign i got the text saying you know uh graduate workers at the university of chicago are on strike can you go and support them right or immigrant rights protests were happening and the campaign uh used its infrastructure to send people uh to those protests um so there's like the literal use of the campaign to say to people go support strikes or, you know, Bernie tweeting at, at one point when the coronavirus epidemic began, I support, uh, I forget the exact quote, but it was like, I support uh, workers who decide to strike uh, in response to unsafe conditions at their workplace. I mean, this is all using the, the energy and attention from uh, an electoral campaign to stoke class struggle uh, rather than tamp it down. And that's what we argue for in the book. We make an argument for a class struggle electoral strategy, which is not something we invented. I mean, it's it was passed uh, at the Democratic Socialists of America National Convention last year in Atlanta as the official strategy of the DSA. It's a strategy that is dedicated to as I was just saying, using elections to uh, to, to do more class struggle uh, rather than less of it. And we're, we should be thankful to Bernie for showing us that such a thing was even possible. There are also, yeah, there are, there are some criteria that we try to lay out some criteria for what that actually looks like, uh, very much keeping in mind the fact that electoral politics can be uh, sort of booby-trapped against our politics. So the, the three criteria that we had, which are sort of uh, guidelines for leftists when they're looking to engage electorally, are one, this question of raising expectations, which we covered earlier in this episode so I won't go into it. I think you kind of understand the basic gist, which is like, you know, having a platform that actually 
develops and expands the working class's sense of what is possible and what they deserve. And then the second criteria is actually this is this is perhaps one of the most important ones. It's the idea of class polarization, but also unity of the working class. So it's a specific type of unity and a specific type of division that only socialist candidacies are going to be capable of affecting. On the right, on the right wing, you have candidates who are expert at uh, running on division. But the divisions that they're pursuing and that they're pushing are racial divisions, there are national divisions, there are cultural divisions or geographic divisions. And those are not the kind that we are interested in. On the, in the center, you know, the, Dem the Democrats, you have politicians that are not interested in division. And in fact, a lot of their rhetoric explicitly rejects division, but they are instead interested in unity. But it's this kind of false unity because what they're asking for is harmony in a deeply conflictual society and specifically a class conflictual society. So they're, they're essentially asking for blue cross, blue shield to coexist peacefully with the people whose medical claims are being denied by Blue Cross Blue Shield. They're asking for real estate giants like Blackstone to coexist peacefully with people who are being evicted by Blackstone. And that obviously is something that we think is not literally not possible, but also when you pretend that it is possible, you are going to inherently privilege the more powerful actor in that scenario, which is going to be the capitalist class. So we reject the Republican division and the Democratic sort of false unity, and we're looking for a different formula, which is uniting the working class in all of its diversity across lines of difference together against the actors in society that they are most different from, which is the sort of billionaire class, the you know me capitalist mega elites that are actually running society. And that is something that we think that people who are running for office can actually effectively incorporate into their campaign rhetoric and that will go a long way if they're actually rallying people around that kind of vision for politics and a sort of vision for us versus them that doesn't play into the hands of the right, but also a vision for unity that doesn't flatten us out in the way that the Democrats would like. And then the third criteria, I'll just very, I'll very briefly introduce the third criteria, but it's, it's really nothing that you haven't heard already. It's this idea that uh, a class struggle electoral campaign ought to leave movements stronger than it found them. It's almost like the same principle of if you go into a forest, you should leave it cleaner than you found it. Like leave no trace. Exactly. Exactly. Or leave Except leave a leave major, a good trace. Leave a good trace, right? And I think you know, Micah gave some examples, and our book is actually full of lots of examples of this. Um, and 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 one example actually that's happening. Well. Failed electoral campaigns can actually yield stronger social movements. And we tried to cover that in the book. And we used the example of East Bay, California, where I currently live, and where I'm a member of East Bay DSA, where we mounted a campaign for state assembly with Javanka Beckles, who is a teamster, a social worker, and a Democratic Socialist of America member. She she sat for years on the Chevron City, or sorry, the Richmond City Council while Freudian Slip fighting Chevron, which is the largest employer in that in that city. Um, which is a working class city just north of uh, Berkeley. And we ran her against this pro-corporate person who used to work for Hillary Clinton, whose nickname was literally, uh, her name's Buffy, Buffy Wicks. Her nickname was literally Buffy the Bernie Slayer. So it was like a kind of a match made in heaven. It was a nice thing to do right, right on the heels of the Bernie versus Hillary contest. Um, we lost. 
Uh, I mean, Buffy Wicks outspent Javanka Beckles like six to one. But DSA ran an incredible campaign for Javanka. I mean, it was a really astonishing operation. It was certainly better than anything we'd ever done. And all of us were really surprised that we were able to pull it off, to be honest. And usually when you do something like that, the, the, the energy and the infrastructure kind of dissipates after an electoral campaign. But the timing was perfect because the Oakland teachers announced like in the last month or so of Javanka's campaign, the Oakland teachers announced that they would be going on strike in the next few months. And so we kept all of that infrastructure in place. We had learned so many skills that were transferable to different kinds of organizing. We had built relationships with people in the community. We built relationships with each other. We built, you know, um, institutional structures that allowed us to actually operate more seamlessly and more democratically and, and so on. And we had a sort of vibrant community in the chapter. And we just basically transposed that onto the Oakland teacher's strike and became the most important community partner in the Oakland teachers strike, uh, which was really incredible for me personally to participate in and really incredible to witness, I think. And that's an example of how you can use you can use elections to actually build your capacity for non-electoral class struggle. I think another great example is what's happening literally right now um, the Emergency Workers Organizing Committee is this joint project between DSA and uh, the United Electrical Workers Union, UE. And it basically consists of staffers of a labor union and socialist organizers uh, putting out a call for non-union workers who are experiencing pandemic-related issues in their workplaces to reach out. And then people are trained to do these intakes and assess cases and provide workers with logistical support to help them fight back on the job right now, even though they don't have a union and they don't have time to get one. And the people who are actually staffing that, I was talking to a UE I was talking to a, a, a UE representative a couple of days ago, and he was saying that it's just incredible to have all of these committed socialists who, for their own ideological purposes, are willing to do this kind of stuff with their spare time. And he was remarking on the fact that there were so many of these socialists because of the Bernie Sanders campaign. Like, this is what drove them into DSA and made them available to do this kind of organizing that is not electoral whatsoever. And it's really about building, the heightening the level of class struggle and building a, a layer of workplace leadership for, for a, a more effective labor movement. So, yeah, once again, and perhaps this is the lesson of the episode, is these, these things can't be juxtaposed. Or to, ta- to take a very different example from, from our enemies that I've been obsessed with recently is to look at the rise of the modern conservative movement, look at Barry Goldwater's blowout loss in 64, then where the movement was when Reagan challenged Ford and lost in 76, but really shaped the threat of Reagan really shaped Ford's politics, who who had to act defensively against Reagan. And then look what happened in 1980. Yeah, this is I've been bringing this up over and over again to people. And the hope, obviously, is that Bernie could serve as a kind of Barry Goldwater like figure, um, you know, and but for good, not for evil. <laughs> I mean, that, that example <laughs> is so important because like no one looks back, no one who knows the history looks back at Barry Goldwater 
losing in 1964 and say that campaign was failed. Like he lost, but the campaign was not a failure. The campaign was a catalyst for a total reshaping of American politics for uh, eventually for decades to come. We're still living with the effects of uh, the movement that Barry Goldwater uh, set into motion in 1964 that kind of culminated in, in Reagan and, and has dominated our politics almost ever since. And uh, the, you know, the hope is that Bernie would serve as a catalyst like that to be able to push back against what Goldwater set into motion. And part of that history of Goldwater is that there were a group of activists around his campaign, especially young people who were kind of on fire for Goldwater. Uh, and People like Hillary Clinton. <laughs> exactly, yes. Gold, Goldwater girl uh, for Hillary Goldwater. Uh, and, but it people who uh, you know, stuck to it for years and refused to, well, first of all, they refused to tamp down their, their zealousness, despite the fact that they had just lost an election and lost it very badly. Uh, and they refused to uh, say, you know, they refused to listen to the calls for them to move their politics closer to the center. Like they planted their flag on the far right of American politics and said, you all have to come to us. We're not going to come to you. Now, of course, there are a million reasons we know that are that why that's so different. I mean, one is that billionaires uh eventually were very happy to come and join in uh you know the, what, what the Go the goldwater youth who were on fire for goldwater were arguing was very palatable to billionaires in a way that is not uh from the bernie campaign and so they had way more resources <laughs> than we we're ever going to have um but but that model of using a campaign including a campaign that fails as long as you you know you don't back away from what you know are the, the, the good and correct and morally true uh, political principles. And you say, no, like this is where the, the flag is going to be planted. I mean, you, you can have an enormous impact on American politics. And, and it, as I said, it's my hope. In fact, I would I would wager a, a bet. I mean, who knows if I'll be right or not, but I would wager a bet that in, you know, 5, 10, 20, 40 years from now, we will look back on Bernie's losing campaigns uh, and say that he was that kind of transformational figure because he set in motion all of these uh, left politics that that kind of flowed from him. And our book, that's what our book is in, is about, is about like noting that there are already things that have come out of his campaign that are bigger than Bernie, um, both on the electoral and social movement level and saying like, that's good. Let's do more of it. And if we do more of it, then we can then we can really have some major wins in the, the years and decades to come. This is Sarah Jaffe, and you are listening to The Dig with Daniel Denver, my favorite podcast for thoughtful discussions on the U.S. left and beyond. And you can support it on Patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at Patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Revolting Prostitutes, The Fight for Sex Workers' Rights by Juno Mack and Molly Smith. How the law harms sex workers and what they want instead. Do you have to endorse prostitution in order to support sex worker rights? Should clients be criminalized? And can the police deliver justice? In Revolting Prostitutes, Sex workers Juno Mack and Molly Smith bring a fresh perspective to questions that have long been contentious. Speaking from a growing global sex worker rights movement and situating their argument firmly within wider questions 
of migration, work, feminism, and resistance to white supremacy. They make it clear that anyone committed to working towards justice and freedom should be in support of sex worker rights. Revolting Prostitutes, The Fight for Sex Workers' Rights by Juno Mack and Molly Smith. Out now from Verso Books. We all knew Bernie was going to endorse Biden at some point, though I don't think many of us expected it so soon and maybe delivered in quite the way that it was. And I think it's fine for people to criticize Bernie. That's healthy. He's not a god. He's just the leader of a of a movement <laughs> and of a campaign. But I don't think people should feel bad about what they did, certainly, as a result. I mean, we've covered that pretty extensively. Or really be angry with Bernie and feel like they've been betrayed. Criticism is one thing, but this kind of sense of like, oh, Bernie's betrayed me is another. And I think just as the candidacy and all the good stuff about the candidacy was bigger than Bernie, so so are some of the constraints about running any candidate in the Democratic presidential primary. Certain concessions are structurally inevitable. If Bernie hadn't committed in advance to endorsing the ultimate nominee, all of the electability issues that ultimately sunk his campaign would have been even worse. And I think, again, very much with with all these concessions, again, again, I think very much, you know, correctly that we believe that the upside was was much bigger. But but what do you think of Bernie's endorsement and the debate over it? I feel a little surprised to see so many people so surprised. Like he did say this the entire time, and this is also exactly what he did in 2016. So when people are saying that they feel uh, extremely betrayed by Bernie Sanders, it does raise some questions for me about how closely they were paying attention to his repeated promises that this is exactly what he was going to do and whether they expected him to, in fact, break that promise, given that we know that Bernie Sanders is, above all, a man of his word. I mean, the man has been extremely consistent his entire life. It does. It would surprise me if he would go back on uh, a, a promise like that. And it's also, you know, he was asked repeatedly. And in fact, nobody else was asked this question. This was just like the in several debates, this question was put to Bernie Sanders and nobody else. So it was actually pretty prominent in the discourse throughout the primary. I think it would have been hard to miss. I don't know if people wanted him to, in fact, uh, go back on his word because I don't know. I don't know. I don't know why, because circumstances were were different or something. But I didn't expect anything other than this. So I'd made my made my peace with it long before. And furthermore, I this idea of um, he shouldn't have endorsed Joe Biden so quickly because he should have been in negotiations with Joe Biden. Uh, and being forcing concessions for Joe's platform. To be quite honest, I think that that actually is a little bit naive because I don't trust Joe Biden to do anything besides run the campaign that he thinks that he should run to beat Donald Trump. And since the guiding theory of politics of that conservative wing of the Democratic Party is that in order to beat a Republican, you need to be as conservative as possible without losing, you know, your working class base, but also capturing the moderate suburbanite swing voters that you think are a critical and integral to 
to victory. I, I don't expect if we are to, you know, if we are able to force him to say he wants to do X, Y, or Z thing that's on our menu, I don't expect him to do anything besides drop it immediately the moment that he starts uh, running in earnest against Donald Trump. I'm not sure why we would expect him. We, well, let's say we get him to say that he's going to, what, run on a housing guarantee. Okay, he says that to us, to mollify us. Is he actually going to do that? No, he's not going to do that. He could say it. Maybe it'll go on his, maybe it'll even go on his website, but is he going to campaign on it? No. I mean, Joe Biden doesn't campaign on politics anyway, right? Joe Biden campaigns on nostalgia. So I, I find the whole conversation a little odd. I think people are taking for granted that it's an important thing to do to negotiate with Joe Biden in between the space when the primary is over and when the general election begins. But I'm not sure if that's even the best place to put our energy. I, I would much rather people be putting their energy towards things like the Emergency Worker Organizing Collective, which I just you know gave you an outline of how that works. And that's actually something that you can do if you are a DSA member in particular, you can sign up and be a volunteer on that project, um, it's probably better for your mental health and better for the uh, our prospects politically than to um, you know wring your hands about whether or not Bernie has betrayed you by doing the thing that he said he was going to do all along. I guess one question that remains is: Could a different person besides Bernie have? used this opportunity to be more aggressive and antagonistic and potentially position us to break away from the Democratic Party and establish a third party like this summer? And I think maybe that the answer is no, because I think that, first of all, like Bernie's unique sub subjective qualities are precisely what made it possible for him to fulfill this historical role for the last half decade. And so the the ways that he is, including the ways that he can be occasionally conciliatory toward the Democratic Party establishment when it's not a battle that he feels is worth fighting, that is actually like a part of what makes Bernie a, a leader who what has for decades prepared him to provide electoral leadership in this moment. And two, I am not sure that we've actually, even though we have um, successfully agitated millions of people around our politics, I don't think that we've agitated them uh, effectively, enough of them around the need to abandon the Democratic Party or uh, you know move beyond the two-party system in order for us to build a party and expect enough people to follow us that that party wouldn't then become a rump party that was derided as a spoiler and therefore unable to actually win the affections of working class people and ultimately ground to a pulp by the other two major, the actual two major parties, or if it wasn't you know completely stamped out of existence and marginalized and humiliated off of the national stage, relegated to a kind of marginality that actually makes it a party in name only, not actually serving the function of a, a workers party or a labor party or a left party of any kind, just kind of a collection of disgruntled people who are desperately clinging to their ballot line every four years. And in fact, we, we learned quite the opposite lesson from the primary, which is that Democratic primary voters, even though we were able to win them over on so many issues, and even though they liked Bernie Sanders, that in fact, they have strong partisan commitments and party identification. Yeah, and we, we have to wrestle with what to do with that. I'm not quite sure what we should do with that, honestly. But I, I wanted to mention that... Um, of course, we knew that Bernie was going to make this endorsement. He said he would the whole time he did in 2016. Um, but I also think that, I mean, maybe if Bernie had proclaimed, 
you know, instead of endorsing Joe Biden, if he had proclaimed, you know, I'm forming the new, a new like workers party in America, maybe that could have come to something. Maybe not. Maybe it could have. But I think that probably in Bernie's mind, the alternative to endorsing Joe Biden at this point just hasn't fully been built yet. Like if he's not directing people to uh, endorse Biden and instead go do this other left thing, we don't have that left thing yet. Like he, we don't have, I mean, we have DSA, we're trying to build DSA and we're, we've made some pretty incredible progress. Uh, but you know, could, would Bernie have looked at DSA and said, you know, all of my followers go, go join DSA. I would have liked to be confronted with the set of problems that that would have presented us with, but, uh, that would have, you know, it's, it's very doubtful that the DSA is currently like in the mode where we could take literally millions of people from the campaign to like start a new third party. I mean, again, that would be, that'd be great. I would, I would love to have that problem, but it just seems like, uh, we haven't yet built the kind of political alternative that Bernie could have directed people towards uh, instead of endorsing Biden. I mean, I you know I don't I, I I think that he could have waited longer to make the endorsement. I think that he uh, was a little too eager to do. I mean, you know, even if even if we know that Biden can't actually be trusted to deliver progr- any kind of progressive commitments that he would make now especially given his political history which if you read bronco marchitich's book yesterday's man uh you realize that biden's whole political career has been moving rightward uh at the slightest you know hint of right-wing opposition and he often goes to the right of the republicans themselves so i don't have any faith in him uh actually delivering on on those kind of progressive commitments that he might make still bernie maybe could have wrung a little bit more out of him but this is also the beauty of what it means to have a candidate whose campaign slogan was literally not me, us. Like if Bernie does something that we can disagree with, we can disagree with him. I mean, and we, you know, Dan, you have written in Jacobin multiple times, uh, you know, ur- urging Bernie to change course uh, to you know, saying that you disagree with something he said or some kind of political strategy he's putting forward. I mean, yeah, it's it, healthy. It's, it, it, no one who is, it's, de- it's democratic. Exactly. Like no one who, who has been involved in this campaign. I mean, it's funny that like liberals often, you know, on, on Twitter or whatever, talk about Bernie cultists. Like, I don't really know oh my any God. Bernie cultists. Like I know people who are, are, if Bernie were to like make a real rightward shift uh, and do something that uh, they disagreed with, people would speak up about it. People would, you know, people, pe- no, there's no reticence. And on the part of members of the Bernie movement, the Bernie coalition, to uh, express disagreement with Bernie. Um, so Bernie's, Bernie's a personality called, and Biden, by contrast, is a policy-centered campaign. I mean, <laughs> yeah, think about right. all the policies, policy issues yeah. you associate with the Joe Biden campaign. Exactly. Yeah. So I, I I'm not, name one. <laughs> it's not really that hard for me to say that I disagreed with what Bernie has done here, uh, and yet still say that he played this transformational role and that I'm grateful for the political situation that we now find ourselves in because he ran for president twice. And I think also to add to that, Micah, that like, I think that there are things that we can disagree with him on without and inflating them to the level of like an earth shattering mistake that has changed the course of the left. Like that to me is the main difference is that I think it's a worthwhile discussion to have, like, should Bernie Sanders have waited longer to get, get more out of Joe Biden? I've made the case for why I think that that's kind of fruitless, but I actually think it's a perfectly reasonable position to say, no, like that kind of antagonistic uh, struggle over the course of the next month or two months would have actually been fruitful. Uh, 
uh, to play out on a, on a massive stage. Okay, that's like a legitimate conversation that we can have. The thing that's, I think, somewhat bothersome to me is, is the idea that it, because he has uh, not done what some people would have liked for him to do, that we are therefore, that all of our gains have been rolled back or something. I mean, I haven't seen anybody actually make the case for why that is true, in part because I think a lot of people are not actually enumerating what they think the gains of the Bernie Sanders campaign are. We've tried to do that a little bit in this episode. We tried to do it a bit in the book. Um, and once you start to list those out, you realize that they haven't actually been rolled back by the endorsement of Joe Biden in any real substantive way. And the same is true for another thing that people bring up a lot, which is that Bernie should have gone harder against Joe Biden. I think that's reasonable criticism. I am not sure, though, that it is the, ultimately the reason why Bernie lost. And like that is a that's a difference that I want to just put forward because I'm not sure. I, th- I feel like it's being elided is like, am I are we angry at him for a certain thing? Do we feel like he messed up? Do we think that if he had done it differently, that we would have seen a different outcome that would have significantly changed the course of the left? Personally, I don't think that if he had gone way harder against Joe Biden, that that would necessarily have resulted in his electoral success because those criticisms would have been mediated through a media establishment that is incredibly hostile to Bernie anyway. And I'm not sure, I think that that's why he held back is because he wasn't certain that it was going to play in his favor. You know, I think that's, I think that's kind of reasonable, actually. I think we should have a discussion about it, even if we would have liked to see him go harder against Joe Biden, even if we feel yeah, that it's but unfair. it's a potentially damned if you do, damned if you don't situation. Right. And like, I do feel, I definitely feel personally that it's unfair that Joe Biden didn't face the degree of criticism that he deserved. Right. And and I think that, you know, it would have been satisfying to me to see Bernie lead on that front. But am I willing to say that it's responsible for Bernie Sanders losing and therefore responsible for throwing the left off course? I, I don't I don't think so. After 2016, we saw, of course, the explosive growth of DSA and a number of national state local level electoral wins. We saw the Red for Ed strikes. We saw a lot. We saw the emergence of Sunrise. In terms of DSA in particular, all three of us are DSA members. How do you see DSA's role right now? How do you appraise its response to these crises and to this this moment? And, and where do you see things heading next? I mean, I think that you know, DSA is one of the the institutions that you know, it's the best the best example we have of the uh, the reborn American socialist movement. I mean, when we say that the American socialist movement is reborn, we primarily mean that DSA has been reborn, and DSA has been a home for most of the and not all of the socialist elected officials who have run uh, and in some cases won uh, since Bernie's twenty sixteen campaign. It has. It's now stepping up to play a role, like Megan mentioned, with Ewok. Members of DSA are going into the labor movement, which we have a whole chapter on in our book about the role that radicals have to play in the labor movement, uh, in you know, uh, reforming unions and making them more militant and more democratic, and vehicles that fight for the entire working class. You know, we played. You know, Sunrise movement obviously has been at the forefront of. Uh, the fight for the Green New Deal, but you know DSA is, is involved in that fight as well, and has a good relationship with groups like Sunrise Movement. Um, so it's really emerged as a, a kind of hub of this reborn left around which 
so many of the key struggles of our world are, you know, there, there are people, it, it, whatever the, the struggle is, whether it's for a Green New Deal or for affordable housing or, or for um, uh, building stronger and more militant unions, uh, running electoral candidates, you name it, all of that stuff is emanating out of DSA. And Megan and I, I think, met through DSA. Uh, we've all, uh, I'm sure all three of us have had our lives totally transformed because we've been engaged with DSA. It's a democratic organization, one that in that that's what's great and what's you know maddening about it, and in, in that it's like fully democratic, and so not every moment within the organization is is one of of pure elation at a class struggle. It's you know there's. There's frustrations like any kind of uh, real democratic organizing, but I don't. I would not uh, have you know. I, I've dedicated much of my life to the last four years of being involved in it, and I wouldn't have spent those last four years any other way because I think that they are there. are it, it's it's central to the, seizing these kinds of political opportunities uh, that we are now presented with through the Bernie Sanders campaign. Um, and you know, in some ways, especially if you get to the end of our book, the book is kind of a book length commercial <laughs> to join DSA because we're saying, you know, if, if you really believe in the uh, not me us uh, slogan of the Bernie campaign, DSA is playing a very key role in building that us. Uh, and so we would uh, highly encourage you to come join us because uh, we're, we're out here seizing those opportunities. Uh, we're, we're building that us. And if, you know, if, if you've been inspired by Bernie's campaign and you, you want to, to seize those opportunities, we're the place where you should be uh, doing it with, along with all the other things that have kicked off. Uh, and, you know, we talk in the book about, you know, it's not just socialists alone, of course, who are leading these new exciting fights. Like it's socialists that are part of a broader progressive and working class coalition. Um, it, it, we're not uh, fighting this alone by any stretch of the imagination, but DSA has a really key role to play and, and we encourage people to come join the organization and, and, and seize the opportunities we've been presented. Megan? I think that Micah said it beautifully. We should probably end on that note, in my opinion. Well, Micah Utrecht and Megan Day, thank you both very much. Thank you so much, Dan. Thanks for having us. Megan Day and Micah Utrecht are co-authors of Bigger Than Bernie, How We Go From the Sanders Campaign to Democratic Socialism, from Verso. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after noting that we humans make our own history, but not under conditions of our own choosing, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Julia Rock and Zachary Nin. Our senior advisor is Thea Riofrancos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please do find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe to The Dig. If it is on iTunes or whatever other sort of platform, please also take a moment to rate and review us. Those are two things that ostensibly help introduce us to new listeners, but what really and truly helps do that is you telling friends, family, strangers about the show, why you like it, why they should listen to it. 
please make propaganda for us. And do, last but by no means least, find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to help keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks is huge. Thank you.